So that was a new song that we learned a few weeks ago, and we're probably, we're probably going to sing that one more time this month to let that soak in, and then we'll give it a little bit of space. Uh, we do this in order to really learn the song. It's a beautiful song that flows out of the Christ hymn from Philippians chapter 2, and how Jesus emptied himself and was completely obedient to the will of, of the Father, and because of this, God has exalted his name. He's given him the name above all names. And uh, we reflect uh, Paul's writings whenever we sing that song. But now we're going to turn our attention from a new song to an old song, uh, what we might call a classic hymn. And you should have a copy in the pew rack in front of you. So if you would take this out, you may have to share. If you don't have a copy, uh, turn to number 137 in your hymnal. You'll be missing a verse. We want this version sung this morning because there's a verse that we normally don't sing whenever we sing Eternal Father, Strong to Save. And a couple of reasons why we wanted this in your hands. Number one, this feeds into the sermon, as we'll see here in a moment. But also, this is a song of intercession. This is a song of special intercession. We cry out, to our eternal Father on behalf of those in peril on the sea. This is why the Navy adopted this song as their official hymn. Uh, this song presumably was part of the, the last hymn service on the Titanic, which is captured in the movie The Titanic. So this morning, as we sing this, I want to put up an image on the screen. And it's an image of a, a statue in Gloucester, Maine, uh, Massachusetts, uh, called the Fisherman's Wives Memorial, and you see it here. And what's pictured here is a mother and her children, and she is actually facing out into the ocean where her husband has gone out as a fisherman. And we can see it in her eyes, a look of longing, uh, a prayerful look and concern, on behalf of her husband, uh, praying to God that he would return home safely. And I think in many ways, this statue is a symbol for the church and what we do week in and week out when we carry those order of worships. We have those names before us. We have the names that are sent out in emails. It's a picture of a church that is interceding. We intercede for one another and we pray for those in peril on the sea. So this morning in our mind's eye as we sing this, I would encourage us to ask that question, who do we see out in the waters? Who's out there with their head barely above the water, struggling against the mighty waves? Who is in peril? Well, the one that we cry out to is the one that is in this song. And one of the things I want to invite you to pay attention to is what we call trinitarian language you see that in the first three verses the one god and three persons god the father who binds the restless wave god the son who calms the raging seas who walks upon the water and then that third verse the holy spirit conjuring up images of the creation when god's spirit was hovering over the chaotic waters each 
person in the Godhead has a connection to water, and the one we cry out to is the one who has power over these waters and can bring order and calm to the storms in our lives. So we're going to leave this image up as we sing this song, and again, let's picture in our minds those who are in peril. So if you would, I would encourage you to keep these, this song in your order of worship this week and use that as a prayer conversation when we work through the names on, those, on our prayer lists. So who is the Eternal Father? Who is the one that we cry out to? What is the nature of His character? Well, we hope to begin to answer some of those questions this morning as we start a new series, a series called The Old Testament in Seven Sentences. So here's a question for you. If someone were to come up to you and say, what's the story of Scripture? What would you tell them? Where would you begin? How would you take them into the story and the world of the Bible and back into our modern world? What kind of roadmap would you use? Well, admittedly, there's a lot of different ways to navigate Scripture. You can start at different places, but one I've been quite enamored with for some time is a book that was recommended to me last year called The Old Testament in Seven Sentences by Christopher Wright, and of course its counterpart, The New Testament in Seven Sentences. And so what I would like to do over the the next 14 weeks or so is to look at seven sentences, seven verses in the Old Testament and seven verses in the New Testament And I think in summary, these verses tell us the story of Scripture and the whole scope of Scripture, and we can fill in the blanks as we go along. But this morning, we're going to start with the first sentence. But before we do that, I think it would be good to talk about Scripture itself. What is Scripture? What is the Bible? We open it up. What do we have in our hands? Well, really what we have is disclosure. God disclosing who He is first to Israel, and then through Israel to the rest of the world. Now, we look around us, and and we get a sense of who God is. Uh, The Psalms says that the heavens declare the nature of God, and we certainly gather a lot of information by looking out in nature and looking at the creation. But God has revealed His character in a very special way through these inspired writers. God has revealed who He is through story through this grand narrative, this drama, if you will. And we think of great stories. It's always good to have an opening line, something that reels you in. So we've heard of famous last words. Well, now we're going to talk about famous first words. So think about literature and movies and speeches and songs. What's a great first line that really reels you in? Can you identify any offhand? Well, I have a few. Let's see if we can identify these from literature. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. You knew this one was coming. Call Me Ishmael. Moby Dick. I can tell you from recent experience, it is all downhill from that first sentence. 
That was a two and a half year journey for me. What about this first line? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Men? Pride and prejudice. Uh, I missed that one. Here's one a little more modern. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. We can think of movies that have famous first lines. Uh, Rosebud from Citizen Kane, which is widely considered one of the greatest snoozers, I mean movies, of all time. I couldn't stay awake in that one. What about speeches? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I don't know if there is a greater first line to a speech than Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Well, a good first line has the potential to draw us in, and when we open up our Bibles, the first line of the story not only draws us in, but really forces us to ask a lot of questions. And if you are a searcher this morning... If you are in search of meaning and purpose and answers, this is where you begin. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that opening line, that, would, that did not come out of a vacuum. That was born in a, in a land of competing stories, in the context of competing stories. There is something written into our DNA as human beings to reach out to that which is beyond us. We are wired for worship. We are worshiping creatures. And we see this especially in the ancients, where every civilization, every culture sought to explain the world around them with, with more than a wink to the divine. There was complete recognition to divinity. Embedded in each one of these cultures are stories of man's interaction with gods and goddesses. And yet they have these stories that sought to answer the great questions that all of us have. Why are we here? What is here? What's our purpose? What has gone wrong? How is it fixed? Well, every civilization had their own answers to those questions. The Egyptians appealed to, appealed to the sun god Ra, who ruled over a pantheon of gods and goddesses. The Canaanites worshipped Baal, or Ba'a, the, the god of the storms, in order to, for them to receive rain and fertility. The Babylonians had their own extensive set of gods and goddesses and their own creation narratives. In fact, according to the Babylonians, the heavens and the earth were created out of the guts of one of the defeated gods after a battle. And with each of these civilizations, these gods and goddesses were often attached to objects of worship, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the earth, the rivers and seas. These gods were petty and vindictive and jealous and backstabbing, not unlike the humans who were worshiping these gods and goddesses. 
and this carried on through the Greeks and the Romans and beyond. And these myths help these societies, these civilizations, make sense of the world around them. So we place ourselves among the people of Israel going into the promised land. And these stories are in the air. They are everywhere. These stories they can see in all places, in symbols, in temples, in idols, in ritual. They walk into this, this land of many competing stories. These are the stories that would lure is the Israelites away from their creator and ultimately land them into exile. So, so what Israel needed was a first sentence. They needed a foundation. They needed a compass to bring them back to true north. They needed a first sentence. And I would say not unlike us today, as the people of God here in Austin, Texas, who live in a land of many competing stories. So I would invite us now to do a little exercise, and we've done this before, but I think it's worth doing again. And if you're comfortable with it, I would ask you to close your eyes for a couple of minutes. And as you close your eyes and your imaginations, get in a car. It could be a really nice car. It doesn't matter. And let's head out to our front entrance on the Lamar side. And when we get to Lamar, let's take a right. Let's head south to downtown. Let's go down to the river. And on the way, let's take inventory of what we see. Let's look to the left and look to the right, unless we're driving. Lamar is a dangerous road. Let's say we're all in the passenger car, the passenger side. If you're not familiar with Lamar, pick another route. But most of us are familiar with the buildings, the restaurants, the businesses, the different kinds of people we see as we head down Lamar. Let's just take a few moments to take inventory of what we see. What kind of competing stories do we come across that work against the story that we have in Scripture? In my mind's eye, I see places of worship, literal places of worship. We have a temple just north of us dedicated to a goddess. We share a fence with our Muslim neighbors. And there are many churches and temples along the way as we head south. I see other places of worship. New Age centers. Psychics. Palm readers. Fitness centers. I see retail stores offering visions of the good life in exchange for cash or credit cards or other offerings. I see buildings of sexual exploitation. I see down Lamar Boulevard the centers of power in our society. Political power, academia, entertainment, technology and science. 
This is Austin, Texas. We are a melting pot. I see people from all walks of life. Who do you see? You can open your eyes. I would encourage us with our families, however we get home today after our first Sunday meal or after LTC practice, to take inventory of the different places of worship, the different competing stories that we see right in our backyard. The vast majority of Austin, Texas is not worshiping at a church this morning. We live in a land of many competing gods and many competing stories. We live in a land of a thousand different answers to those basic questions of life. How did we get here? What is our purpose? And just like the Israelites, we too need a compass. We need a first sentence. But we have a first sentence in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It's a sentence that grounds all other sentences because here at the very beginning we're introduced to the chief character of our story. We find out the who behind the how and the what and the why. In Genesis 1-1, we are introduced to the one to whom we cry out for those who are in peril on the sea. And it's not a pantheon of gods and goddesses competing and warring with one another. No, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we are introduced to the God who is above the creation, not part of the creation. We are not pantheist. The universe is not a man- manifestation of God. The God of Genesis 1 and 2 is the God who is over and above, the God who transcends and is outside of the creation, yet the God who sustains the creation. At the beginning of our story, we find that the earth is formless and void and empty, and the Spirit of God, as the hymn we just sang when we got to the right version, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the waters of chaos, the waters of formlessness. And what's unpacked for us in Genesis chapter 1 is this six-day sequence of God ordering the creation. God separating and filling, separating the waters, separating the land from the sea, separating the light by day and the light by night, and then filling, filling the earth with trees and fruit-bearing plants, filling the skies with lights, filling the seas and the air and the land with creatures of various kinds. What we're given in Genesis chapter 1 is a picture of God bringing order out of the chaos, and with every sequence, God deems this ordering good. The creation is good. And behind the good creation is a good creator. It's one of the pillars of our faith. It's foundational that God is good. It is a, it's a moral statement. It's why we say this. We sing this. God is so good. It's so simple. And yet, everything hangs on that. God is good. But as the story unfolds, we see that not only is God good, God is personal. God seeks relationship. There's relationship even within God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. 
God is there at the beginning, at the creation, and is active in the creating process. And a good and personal God creates us in His own image. He made us to be personal creatures. We function in relationship. We seek relationship. We seek relationship with God. We seek relationship with one another. In Genesis 1 and 2, we are told that God has given us dominion over the creation. We are, in a sense, many kings of the creation. We are stewards of the creation. We serve. We cultivate the land. We unlock the creation's hidden potential. God created us, male and female, to live in relationship with one another, to be fruitful and multiply, and to continue the process of filling the earth. If you're going to sum it up, God created us to be creators ourselves, to join in with God in this creative project. It's unbelievable when we think what we have been invited into. The creator of the universe has called upon us to join in that creation process. And as we work through Scripture, this is unpacked more. There are more specific things that we are given, more specific directives we are given as to what our mission is all about. But here at the beginning, we are introduced to the God of creation. This is the chief character in the story. All of this captured in the first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that sentence is what helps us locate ourselves in the story. It's in that sentence where we find our mission and purpose. And in a city with a thousand different competing stories, this is our grounding passage. This calls on us to join in with what God is doing. But this morning I'm going to close with this thought as we think about the creation which is an act of grace in and of itself, but beyond that, it's, it's an incredible word of grace for the church, and especially for those who are in peril on the sea, especially for those who are experiencing disorientation this morning, and chaos, and restlessness, and confusion. Because what we have in Genesis 1-1, in the opening chapters of Genesis is a picture of the God who can bring order out of chaos. The God who binds the restless wave. The God who brings peace and shalom to the confusion. That's what God does. That's what God has done from the very beginning. He's brought shape to the formlessness. And when we look at the mess of our own lives, we see that the same God can bring order out of that mess and out of that chaos. We see it at the cross. The disorientation and the cry and the agony and the chaos of the cross and then the reordering of the empty tomb. That is who God is. This is the song that we sing. This is our story. This is our song. This is why we praise our Lord and Savior all the day long. This morning, if we come here, maybe we are walking out of step with our Creator. 
this sense of joining in with God's mission, maybe that is as far from our minds as possible. Maybe we've pushed it. Maybe we have willingly walked out of step with our Creator and we're learning in many ways the hard way what that's like walking out of step with our purpose and our mission here in this world. Well, we have the opportunity this morning to recenter ourselves, to readjust our compass around true north, and to once again come to this table and remember who is at the center of everything we say and everything that we do as the people of God here in Austin, Texas, here at Brentwood Oaks. If you would like for the church to surround you in prayer, If you have any other need that you would like to express, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing of our blessed assurance. Blessed assurance.